The three most common types of drum set cymbals are the ride cymbal, the crash cymbal, and the hi-hat. The ride's the biggest one, you play that with a steady rhythm to ride the beat. The crash is smaller, you hit it for accents, you know, it crashes. The hi-hat is actually two cymbals that you open and close with your foot. If I could only have one, I'd go with a hi-hat, but that's just me. Let's ask the horns what they think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about ride cymbals and crash cymbals, hi-hats, splash cymbals, china cymbals, and all the other things that drummers love to hit with sticks. We've got a jam-packed Q&A episode coming up, and I'm excited to get into some of the many questions that all of you have sent in. So find your favorite listening spot, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. Over the course of this year, I've been refurbishing my dad's old drum set. It's a 1960s Ludwig Super Classic. It's a beautiful kit. And uh, I took it down to a really cool drum shop, Revival Drum Shop, here in Portland. And I'm a big fan of them and the work that they did on the drum set. I've currently got it with a ride, a crash, and a hi-hat. And then a second crash that was just sort of the symbol he had that's a little bit more like a small ride. It sounds a little bit more like a ride. Um, Anyways, sometimes I'll look at drum videos, you know, on YouTube or somewhere where some drummer will be demonstrating drum fills. And they'll have, you know, 10 cymbals, they'll have two different china cymbals and splash cymbals and all these exotic, cool sounds. And I'll think to myself, man, I should really get more cymbals for my drum set. And then I'll think to myself, Kirk, you're not even that good at drums. You're not a drummer. You don't need more cymbals. They're very expensive. You're fine with what you've got. And um, I, I cool my jets and go back to just working with what I've got, which is plenty sufficient. So welcome to the show, everybody. This is a Q&A episode. I'm excited to get into it. I've been building up a huge list of questions from listeners that so many of you have sent in. Thanks to everybody who sent in a question. Um, I do have too many to answer on the show. So if you've sent one and I haven't answered it yet. There's a chance I'll answer it in the future. I have a giant document that just has all the questions anyone's ever sent, and I go through them and try to put together a like, collection for an episode that'll work, but that does mean that I can't get to all of them. So I apologize if I don't get to your question and you sent one in, but that doesn't mean that I'll never get to it. I've actually been really proud of the last few episodes of the show. I feel like it's it's been a really fun summer, and the last five or six episodes have felt like I'm finding a good groove. Um, part of that is just I've learned, and you know, the process of making this show since I started it last November has been really instructive, and I've gotten better at it. I think. Some of it is feedback that I get from listeners. You know, people will write in just with thoughts and ideas, and that's always really helpful. And a big part of it is just I'm putting more and more time into the show. And the reason I'm able to do that is because of my Patreon backers. You can find the name of my whole note and half note patrons in the show notes. And actually, I'm just going to shout out my whole note patrons. These are people who back the show for $20 a month, and that's an amazing, really generous thing for them to do. Caleb Rotach, Chad Bernard, Dan Epchinski, Dave Flory, and Glenn, as well as Jared Norris, who just signed up this month. Thanks so much to you for being whole note patrons. It is above and beyond, and I really, really appreciate it. All right, let's get into the listener questions. We've got a ton to get through, so uh, let's waste no more time. If you want to send me a question for a future Q&A episode, of course, you can send it to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet it at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. All right, let's do this. 
Our first question comes from Russ, who asks, based on what Marty McFly says to the band at the end of Back to the Future, could a band realistically play the backing of Johnny B. Good with that little prior knowledge of the song? Okay, I love this question. Russ, of course, is referring to the famous scene in Back to the Future when Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, gets up on stage at a 1955 high school dance and plays the song Johnny B. Good, which Chuck Berry wouldn't actually write until 1958, or at least record until 1958. The joke is that this kind of rock and roll was not familiar to people and so marty kind of just tells the band what to play they play along with him and he blows everybody's mind so let's listen to that scene this is what marty says to the band before they start playing and then a little bit of them playing all right guys uh, listen this is the blues riff and b watch me for the changes and try and keep up okay Okay, so one of the things that cracks me up about this is hearing Michael J. Fox's actual voice when he talks to the band, and then um, hearing the voice when he sings. Way down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens. So obviously that is not Michael J. Fox actually singing. That is a singer named Mark Campbell who did the voiceover for that. Though this scene is a lot of fun and I think Michael J. Fox does a great job of, you know, fake playing the guitar. He's actually a guitar player and he pulled it off pretty well. So Russ's question is, would the band be able to play it with just the information that Marty gave them? Let's hear what Marty told them again. All right, guys, uh, listen, this is a blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Okay, so this is a blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try to keep up. A few thoughts on that. First of all, uh, Johnny B. Good is actually in B flat. This recording is in B flat. The original Chuck Berry recording is also in B flat. This is just a B flat blues. So I don't know why Marty said B and not B flat, but uh, let's just pretend he said B flat. First of all, I don't think you really say this is a B blues riff. You would say this is a blues and B or it's a B blues. The riff is not that important. The like riff is what he's playing on guitar. You would just t- want to tell the band this is a B blues, which this is a blues. It's 12 bar blues. Uh, we talked about that on the last episode about Cowboy Bebop. Blues is a type of song form. You could definitely say to a band, this is a B blues. Here we go. The fact that he says, watch me for the changes and try to keep up is just kind of a, a punky thing to say to a band. I would never say try to keep up to a band. Um, that's like, you know, not a very polite thing to say. And also it's hard to watch the guitar player for the changes when he's the front man. So that's also not a very practical instruction to give the band because you would want to watch the guitar player's left hand on the fretboard but he's facing away from them the entire performance so if it were a rehearsal you could say yeah watch my just watch me i'll play the chords and that's like not a great way to learn a song but it'll work you know a lot of bands can kind of follow your fingers and figure out what you're playing but if you're on stage in a performance setting you would never say that especially if you're going to be in front on the microphone with your hands facing outward so the fact that the band follows along and especially the fact that they give him the hit on that opening guitar riff just perfectly together right here is a testament to how good this band must be because he doesn't really give them a great cue but they do hit it together and then they go into the blues So really, you know, a jazz band or a dance band in 1955 would definitely know what a blues is. They would know these chords. They'd pretty much be able to play it. The drummer is playing basically the exact groove that's on the actual 1958 recording of Johnny B. Good. 
So, you know, good on the band for for taking this punk kid's words and turning them into basically the exact right groove for Johnny Be Good. Of course, that means my answer to Russ's question is pretty much no. I don't think that a band would be able to take that direction and just come up spontaneously um, with this perfect accompaniment, particularly because he told them to play in the wrong key. But um, at the same time, it's kind of nitpicking a really, really fun scene. And let's remember, this scene ends with Chuck Berry's cousin calling him on the phone and playing him like letting him hear the performance so he then can become inspired to write a song that marty mcfly only knows because chuck berry already wrote it and it's a completely impossible time paradox so maybe nitpicking isn't the thing we need to be doing with this very fun very good movie all right our next question comes from clifton who asks what's the time signature for pink's walk me home a friend of mine says it's a straight 4-4 beat but it doesn't sound like it based on where pink is stressing with her singing can you explain this Sure, I can definitely explain this. I had not heard this song until Clifton's email, and I think this song is actually pretty great. It has a really cool music video, too. Let's listen to it and see if we can count it. There's something in the way you roll your eyes Takes me back to a better time When I saw everything is good But now you're the only thing that's good all right, so there's some pretty cool counting going on there in the verse. It's a little bit different than the counting on the chorus. Let's do the verse first. So it starts out with basically a seven thing. It's a bar of three and then a bar of four, then a bar of three and then a bar of four. So two sets of seven. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. I'll count it along with her. There's something one, in the two, way you three, your eyes. All right, so the next part, it then does actually just goes into three. So then they're just four bars of three. One, two, three, one, two, three. When I saw one, everything two, is three. Good. One, two, three. One, two, three. So there's more going on in this song. The chorus actually does something a little bit different. There's like bars of three and then a bar of four, then two bars of four. Walk me home in the dead of night. It's basically a mix of bars of three and bars of four, and that's how I would say you want to figure out how to count it. So to answer your question, Clifton, uh, your friends are wrong. It is not a straight 4-4 beat. This song is playing with some cool stuff. It's all very downbeat heavy, though, and I bet you can figure out how to count it. Just look for it's either a bar of three or a bar of four, then kind of figure out what you think it is, listen back to it, and count what you think it is, and it'll work. You know, you'll know if it'll work. Good luck. All right, our next question comes from Melissa, who asks, how do composers choose a key to write a song in? Other than vocal range for vocalists, of course, and assuming your instrumentalist can play in any key you throw at them, what are other considerations? I'm a pianist and can just push a button on my clav, and any song can be in any key that I want. Do you feel certain keys evoke a different feeling than others? This is a big question with like a lot of different answers. So I would say, for starters, yes, certain keys evoke a different feeling than others, at least in the musicians playing them, right? I think back in our Stevie Wonder episode about I wish i talked about how a lot of his riffs are on this like g flat pentatonic scale which is the black keys on the piano because those keys feel a certain way when you play them and you can kind of hit certain rhythms and just get a slightly different feeling and i don't know if that would come across when you listen to it consciously but it definitely is something that the musician feels and if the musician feels it when they're playing it it's going to be something that will come out in the music so the audience will feel it one way or another it's true what you say melissa that you know most musicians or professional musicians can play in whatever key you know you could give me a saxophone 
solo to play in any of the 12 keys and I'd be fine. However, there are definitely keys that I like more than other ones, and if I'm going to write a song, I'm probably going to write something in B-flat or E-flat or A-flat, some of the keys that I like. I'm probably not going to write something in G-flat, which transposes up to A-flat on the tenor saxophone, which is my main saxophone. I don't really like playing in A-flat. Like, I can do it if I get a song that's in that key. I'll make it happen. But I'd way rather play, you know, down a half step or up a half step. I'm much more comfortable in those keys. So some people, you know, if you're the one writing the song, you're going to pick a key that you're most comfortable with. I would say that the number one reason that people pick a key for a certain song is the reason that Melissa said, and that's vocal range. Um, It's not just about the highest notes and the lowest notes. It's sort of where you want the melody to be. If there's a big held note on the chorus, you really want that to be in this sort of sweet spot for you. You're going to change the key. Um, One of the reasons that playing uh, a guitar with a capo can be so nice is I'll be like, you know, this would just sound better up a whole step. And I can just slide it up a whole step, sort of similar to the button on your clavinova, Melissa, that changes the key, which is a nice thing to do just when you're workshopping a song and kind of working it out. Oh, this would sound better if I was singing an E here because I'd be a little higher in my range. I'd be pushing it a little bit more. I'd have more drama. So there are a lot of decisions like that, I think, that get made when people are considering the vocalist because the vocalist is less flexible than a lot of other instruments. Like a singer on a high A is just going to get a very different sound than on a high F, where a piano, you can just kind of press an A or an F. So there's there's a little more flexibility with some instruments than with the voice. Uh, here's a funny story that I'll share. I played a gig once with Connie Francis, who is this kind of classic singer. She played, she sang that song, Where the Boys Are, which is a super famous song. I actually played with her at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, which is maybe the ultimate San Francisco gig of all time. It was a real honor and just super cool to play with someone that storied and famous. And one of the funny things was we had this huge band, there were a bunch of different you know, instrumentalists playing. There was a whole horn section. I was just a very small part of it. But the charts that they had had years written on them because as Connie Francis got a little bit older, her voice would lower a little bit, which is totally normal for a singer to do. She sounded great. It's just, you know, your, your voice will lower a little. So each year they would rewrite the charts and lower the key a little bit so that she would still be kind of in those sweet spots on the same notes. I don't think that she's the only singer to ever do that. So actually, just a sort of expansion on this question, sometimes people will change the key of a song after they write it to keep it somewhere that sounds good. And it can go the other way too. You know, a singer can find new high notes that they didn't have before and a song might go up in a high, in a higher key. I've actually been doing that myself on some of my older songs where I wasn't really a very good singer and I was writing and kind of keeping it low and comfortable. I'm finding that I can stretch a little bit and I'm raising the key on some of my songs as well. So that is yet another reason that a song might change keys and a lot of the time it's driven by the vocalist. So the next couple of emails I got aren't actually questions, they're just things people emailed me that I thought were pretty cool that I thought listeners might enjoy. The first one comes from Johan, who is an architect in Sweden, and he wrote a little bit about his own process. He wrote, As I try to compose my projects together with my team of architects, we run into similar problems that a songwriter or musical composer might run into. We also need to listen for and try to create specific harmonies and atmospheres. We also, in our field, find it very important to understand the experience of the work, and it's very much something that the listener does at least part on their own. You need to give them some space for their own interaction. I don't know if the analogy would be that they are the musicians and we are the composers, or they are the audience and we are the conductors. In my field, I try to aim for some of the natural contact with the sensory experience of a space or a certain material, and we are often dragged down by structure, technical issues, and a lot of pretentious ideas of order that make no sense when experiencing the actual space. A certain production sound in music, such as lushness, is just so interesting to hear you dissect on strong songs as I deal with similar concepts lush, cozy, formal, relaxed, and we use similar strategies. It's fascinating stuff. 
I agree that that is fascinating stuff, Johan. Thanks for that email. I just think that that's really cool. I've always seen music as a kind of a spatial thing. There's definitely a sort of architectural element to music. You know, there's a verticality and there's an X and Y axis. You build these spaces for people to move around in. Both listeners move around in them. And then if you're writing like a jazz tune, for example, you're actually designing a space for somebody else to improvise in. You know, a chord progression is a space that you've built that's going to repeat and, you know, move forward over time. And then the person who's playing on it is maybe someone you don't even know is going to have to solo over that. So you really are designing a space for them to play in. Side note, that's actually one of the reasons that I think that video games are very similar to music as well. I think there's a lot of cool commonality to all forms of art. And music is such a fundamental form of art that like aspects of music turn up in a whole lot of different other art forms. And it's really, really interesting. So thanks, Johan, for that email. The next email comes from Matt's, which is related to a question I answered before about how perfect pitch works. I gave kind of the best answer I could come up with at the time, which is a sort of a, a thing about seeing color and and how for people with perfect pitch, they can kind of hear hear music that way. I don't have perfect pitch, so it was an imperfect, perfect pitch explanation. Matt's written with just an interesting story from a friend of his. He says, I liked your analogy about colors, and I thought I'd mention another analogy explanation I got from a friend who has perfect pitch. He said that anyone who's reasonably musical can hear a note played on an instrument and sing that note back, i.e. we all remember a note pitch for a little while. His explanation of perfect pitch was basically that he remembers a note for months much longer. That really resonated with me because I've found that remembering is a skill that I can actually train. I used to sing in choirs, and when I've been deep in it, I've actually been able to mime hitting an imaginary pitchfork in my head and then sing with a surprising accuracy, sing an A. It's definitely not perfect, but you know, it's maybe a semitone off. When I try it now, years after I've last been in a choir, it's almost random what note I come up with. So I feel like there's something to the remembering thing. Um, Thanks, Matt, for sharing that. I think that's really cool. It's a cool account from someone who actually has perfect pitch as well. And I think that is useful. I totally know that feeling of, you know, when you're playing a thing over and over again, especially something like a tuning fork that, you know, you'll hear that high ringing tuning note over and over and over again, if you're in a choir and eventually it kind of just gets in your head and you can just basically hear it. Um, your, your brain kind of learns these notes and they get stuck in there and then they fade over time. So it totally does make sense that perfect pitch would work that way. And yeah, I just thought that was interesting and worth sharing. One more interesting thing that a listener wrote in to tell me about is this came from Jennifer who wrote in to say, I've been catching up on my podcast and I just listened to the episode where you answered the question about coming to love albums you were lukewarm on the first time you heard them. This is a well-known phenomenon in psychology called the mirror exposure effect. It applies to many domains, food, art, music, and even our opinions about other people. This is true. I didn't know about the mirror exposure effect and it is a thing. I looked it up. You can look it up too. I'll maybe put a link to the Wikipedia entry uh, in the show notes, but um, it's a fascinating phenomenon that totally makes sense. You know, I was kind of describing something that has a term for it. So thanks, Jennifer, for sending that in. Okay, back to questions. Andrew writes, how did Nirvana get the sonic textures they did on Come As You Are? How do I make my guitar sound like that? And why is it so melodically interesting? So Andrew, I think what you're talking about is probably just the main guitar riff that Kurt Cobain is playing on Come As You Are. Let's listen to that. This 
This is such a cool recording. Uh, this is from Nevermind, the extremely famous Nirvana album. I didn't appreciate Nirvana enough uh, when they first kind of hit the scene. I was in middle school, early high school. I was just, like really into jazz and a little freaked out or turned off by grunge music. It wasn't my thing at first. And then I came back much later and came to appreciate just how good some of the music is. What's so cool about this track is it's really minimal. I mean, it's just guitar, bass, and drums, and Kurt singing, and it's so just stripped down and basic, but it's got this very evocative and distinct sound. It's really well produced and really cool sounding. And a big part of that actually is the guitar tone that Andrew is asking about. I mean, everything else, the bass just sounds like bass, the drums just sound like drums, the vocals are just vocals, the guitar is the thing that kind of gives this song its distinct texture. So what is going on? Well, two things. First of all, the guitar is dropped down, it's tuned in D, so it's tuned lower, and there's a chorus effect. Now, looking around, I think that what Kurt Cobain really liked to use was the Electro Harmonics Small Clone Chorus Pedal. I think that that's what he's using here. And he's tuned in D, which is a little bit different than Drop D. Drop D tuning is where you just take the lowest string and you drop it a step, a low D, and leave everything else in place. The way that he's playing, he's actually tuned the whole guitar down. So the guitar just sounds lower. The whole thing is tuned down in D. So the whole guitar is tuned down a whole step. So normally a guitar goes E, A, D, G, B, E. Those are the strings. Those sound like this. But if you tune the guitar to D, you just tune everything down a whole step, you get D, G, C, F, A, D, which sounds like this. That lets him play the riff, just the whole thing is down a whole step. It would sound, you know, harmonically the same if you played it in E in the normal tuning for the guitar, but this gives the guitar that kind of deeper, lower, darker sound. So that's kind of what he's playing. This is what it sounds like without the chorus effect, just with the guitar tuned down into D. effect does kind of what it sounds like it creates this it kind of creates a second version of the original signal and doubles it a little bit but then it, you can adjust these knobs and you know there are a bunch of parameters you can adjust and it'll make it more or less in tune with the original source which gives it a kind of a sense of thickness that isn't normally there a lot of really famous guitar tones use chorus in different ways uh, this is just one one you know one example but basically that's what's happening now i don't own kurt cobain's actual electroharmonics chorus pedal but you know i've got a chorus effect here in logic so i'm going to use that. This is what the guitar riff sounds like with chorus turned on. And in the rest of the track, he's he's still just using chorus. You know, he starts playing more of the guitar and, and just getting away from those bottom two strings. But uh, it's all chorus in there. So if you want to try to get his tone, he's really playing a pretty straightforward thing. It's mostly just reliant on that one effect on chorus and the fact that he has tuned his guitar down. Our next question has actually come from a bunch of different people, uh, from Adam and Jack and Sam, maybe a few other people as well. Uh, this is Adam writing. What exactly is remastered? Are they taking the original studio tapes and just running them through modern computers, or are they completely remixing the tracks? What is the process? Are the original producers in on it, and what is gained or lost? Okay, so remastered is a specific thing. It's not the same as remixed or re-engineered, and uh, it's, you know, to know what it is, you have to know what mastering is. So mastering is usually the final step in the process process of making an album or some sort of recording. So think of it this way, this is kind of the process for making an album once you've written the songs and gotten the band together and everything. First you record it, then you mix it, then you master it, and then you release it. So you can kind of, there's more steps than that, but those three steps are the most important for this. 
So recording, obviously everybody's in the studio, everybody records it. Then comes mixing. Mixing and editing happen at the same time. Editing is its own whole thing. Editing is where you move stuff around and maybe trim stuff out. Um, mixing is where you adjust the levels of everything. You know, you set the drums here and you put the guitar over in the left channel over here. You pan things left and right. This is kind of like the most nitty gritty thing because you have isolated tracks for each instrument. You know, you've got the guitar on one track and you can move the fader up and down and make it louder or quieter. You have the vocals there. You can then go and overdub more vocals and, you know, this is where a lot of the sort of real meat of the production work happens. So once you finish editing and mixing, you get a mix, and that's a stereo mix down, it's called. So then you've just created a stereo file that's basically the same thing that people are going to listen to when they listen to the album, and then you send it away to be mastered, or you bring in a mastering engineer to master it. This is a whole separate process. It's kind of like alchemy. Um, mastering is it's definitely its own whole thing. There are people who are really, really good at it, and they're called mastering engineers, and that's their whole job. Um, a lot of mastering engineers are also really good mixing engineers, but it's a different discipline and it requires a different skill set and kind of a different set of ears. So a mastering engineer will take the stereo mix, you know, they can't do any mixing, they don't have access to the individual tracks, they'll take it and they'll run it through kind of compressors and EQ and like they'll, you know, shine it up and brighten it up. Usually they'll juice the signal and make it kind of bigger and louder, a little more uniform, so if you listen to it on all kinds of different speakers it'll always sound good. And that's kind of the, a really broad you know, idea of what mastering is. So Andrew, when you ask, are they taking the stereotapes and running them through modern computers? Like, yes, they're not necessarily using a computer, but they are probably most remastered albums that come out, you know, or albums from the 60s or 70s that have been taken and redone. Like that process has been redone with modern equipment, kind of for modern standards. They usually, sometimes they'll make it louder. Sometimes they'll just kind of enhance things or bring out things that got a little bit lost because the technology has improved. Um, and it does change the nature of the recording, but it doesn't fun fundamentally change the mix or anything like that. Remastering is controversial. Um, there is, you know, there are all kinds of remastered albums. I generally listen to remastered albums. I don't have a problem with it. I'm not a really hardcore audiophile, though. I don't sit there and super notice the differences. I just want to hear the music. I'm more concerned with that than with the actual sound quality. But it is, I understand why it's a controversial thing to do. You're taking the original work and redoing it. It's kind of like taking an old painting and cleaning it, where, you know, you could say, all right, well, if you clean it off, you could just make it easier to see what the painting is supposed to look like, or you could be actually kind of changing, you know, the way that it looked or inadvertently, you know, altering the artist's original intent. So generally speaking, remastering just makes something sound a little bigger, a little crisper, and a little bit better, but you do risk losing something. And I'll just say that mastering engineers are amazing. A guy named Mike Romanowski, who's an amazing engineer in San Francisco, he mastered my first album like 10 years ago when it came out, and I remember sitting in the room with him while he mastered it, and it was actually terrifying what he could do. He was working with stereo files, so he wasn't mixing it or anything, but he would do stuff with the equalizer where he could isolate individual instruments almost. He would just suddenly, I would be hearing only the guitar and he'd be shining up the guitar almost like he was mixing it even though he was working with a stereo file just because he was so good with his equipment and knew what he was doing. It was really, it was an amazing thing to behold and mastering is definitely a discipline that eludes me. When I do finish my next album, I will be hiring a mastering engineer to master it for me. Our next question comes from Jack who writes, Jethro Tull's Cross-Eyed Mary has some kind of a flute solo in the middle of it that sounds like it makes a noise, kind of like one of those ratchet noisemakers. What is making this strange sound? Well, Jack, I'm glad that you asked. That is Ian Anderson playing flute in Jethro Tull, and as someone who plays flute, I can actually answer that question. Let's listen to the solo that Jack is asking about. Hey. 
<laughs> so that is an old trick, uh, not necessarily invented by Ian Anderson, but definitely popularized by him. That's kind of a vocalizing flute thing where you can vocalize through or over a flute. Uh, other players like Rasan Roland Kirk, really amazing multi-instrumentalist jazz player, would do this kind of stuff. And uh, it's basically what you're doing is you're blowing across the flute to play it, right? Like you're blowing across a beer bottle or something. And um, as you do that, you kind of make a sound with your vocal cords, which are normally not really doing anything. Okay, so I've got my flute here. Check it out. So I can play something like that, and that's just normal flute playing. And when I play it, it just sort of sounds like I'm playing flute. But if I kind of go underneath that, you know, I'm blowing across the flute. I'm not really blowing into it. Um, flute, like I said, is like a beer bottle. You're blowing across it. So if I just, instead of going to blow, I go kind of like that, you know, up high, you get a sound that sounds like this. So it adds this kind of really crazy sounding, I'm kind of doing that while blowing across the flute. So it's not exactly a multiphonic, but it's kind of two different sounds. That's something that Ian Anderson does a lot, and it gives him that kind of really rocking sound. So you can hear his voice in there. You know, this is just called vocalizing, and you can do this on saxophone. You can do this, a lot of woodwind players will do this. Anytime you hear a rock saxophone player, they'll kind of be sometimes kind of singing through their horn, and it gives them that extra kind of blah, 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 sound. Like you'll go, ooh, and it just adds an amount of sort of extra vibration to your sound. Actually, here's a great example just from the last episode. Um, Masato Honda, the alto sax player who plays the solo on Tank from Cowboy Bebop, on his solo break, when he goes up to the high note, he does a vocalization through his horn. You can actually hear it. He's like in the background of the note while the note is ringing out. Check it out. It's really hard to hear unless you know what you're listening for. You, it's almost like you can just hear the air being tensely kind of held back by his vocal cords. And actually, vocalization is really hard on my vocal cords compared to actual singing. It's really like kind of tense. So Ian Anderson did that a lot, and there's always kind of a balance, especially with flute, which is kind of a really light instrument. You can overdo it and make it so you hear your voice more than you hear the flute. He kind of keeps the balance where the flute is jumping out. It's also a little bit higher up, but you can hear his voice there in the background. So then when he does that really wild sounding thing um, that Jack is asking about, he, uh, he totally flips the balance and it's almost all his voice. So all he's really doing is he's going, he's like making a weird sound like that, but he's doing it over a flute. So it's a little more like, and it just gives it this really unhinged wild sound where his voice suddenly just jumps out. Um, I love this kind of stuff. I love when Rasan Roland Kirk does it too. Like sometimes he'll talk to his flute. He'll go like, what'd you say? And then he'll play something on the flute while he's kind of yelling. And it gets the voice involved in a way that a lot of instruments actually can't do. It's one of the distinct th things about rock flute that I think is really cool. Like you, like I was saying, you can do it on saxophone, but it's not as transparent. You don't hear the voice as much because the horn is in your mouth. You're kind of, it's like a more vocal sound to be begin with because the flute is kind of so light and airy when you're kind of shouting behind it you really hear the shouts too and it gives the instrument this very human sound that can be very exciting and kind of intense
intense. Oh man, Jethro Tull, super good band. All right, next question comes from Joseph who writes, why is the intro to Money for Nothing by Dire Straits the greatest rock intro along with the cleanest crisp guitar lick I've ever heard? This song is something else, my favorite classic rock song. I can't hear that intro enough. Obviously, this is kind of a subjective question. Like, Joseph, I can't actually explain to you why you like this song. You like it because it rocks and it's good. Um, I do think this is a really cool intro and the guitar riff in particular is cool for a specific reason that I that I can highlight really quick. Okay, so this song starts with this big open synth thing that doesn't sound like the rest of the song. That's where the guy is singing. So that goes on for a while and then it builds up and the drums come in and then the band starts coming in and the guitar comes in and everything has this feeling of like coming alive and lighting up and the whole band is really, really loud and everything is built to a head and then... Oh man, I got nothing. I am with you, Joseph. That is straight up one of the greatest guitar riffs ever. It rocks so hard, it just totally kills. Okay, so why does it rock so hard? All right, so that's Mark Knopfler. He's the uh, guitar player for um, Dire Straits. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. Um, you know, really good player. And he's getting a really cool guitar tone. It sounds to me like this is like a tube screamer, some kind of overdrive pedal going on. I'm sure there are breakdowns of this, uh, of his exact tone online, but it's not really complicated or anything. He's got the EQ kind of muffled, so it sounds like he's maybe playing the bridge pickup. And there's a, just a kind of a, a like mid-heavy kind of oh, 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 kind of a sound. Um, it could be that he's using a wah-wah pedal creatively to get that sound too. And I believe that he's playing finger style. I think that he's playing without a pick. And so some of his attacks are just with his fingers. And that's another reason that sounds a little bit distinct. To me though, like I, that's all the, the guitar-y partic- particulars. But uh, to me, it's all about the rhythm of the, of the lick that he's playing. In particular, I think it's that he comes down so hard on two. Um, two is a big thing in rock music, you know, going to the strong songs, thump, pop, sizzle, uh, groove breakdown that I have to contractually mention on every episode. Thump is the kick drum, pop is the snare drum, sizzle is like the cymbal. The pop is on two a lot of the time, you know, one, two, three, four, booms, pops, booms, pop. And he lands on two with the riff. When it first comes in, there's nothing on one, and then he comes in on two. Here, I'll count it in, check it out. And one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. I think that more than anything else is what gets your head bopping when you hear that. It said he's like down. This is just like in G. Um, it's a pretty cool riff. I started trying to learn it, and then I was like, I don't have time to learn this for this episode, but I might learn it one day. And I think that's what makes it rock. I'm a big fan in general of a sort of displaced one where nothing happens on one, and then everything hits on two. And that, to me, you know, along with the guitar tone, really just everything about this intro is what makes it rock so hard. Yeah. 
Our next question is actually another popular one that I've gotten several times over the months. This one comes from Alex. He asks, could you please explain how to count Radiohead's Pyramid song from the 2001 album Amnesiac? Yes, Alex, I can't explain how to count it. I had to sit down for a while to figure this out because this song is kind of complicated and fascinating uh, and really kind of tricky and there's a lot going on. So for starters, let's just listen to a verse from Radiohead's Amnesiac. Jumped in the river, what did I see? So in a way, it's kind of simple. And in a way, it's really, really complicated. And um, I want to kind of like get at that simplicity and that complication in this, because I think that that is like a fascinating place for a song with kind of unusual counting to be. Okay, so the concept to understand for this song that we're going to be talking about is the concept of subdivision. Subdivision is a rhythmic concept in music, and what it means is there are longer notes and shorter notes, and every note has a length, you know, kind of assigned to it by the type of note that it is. So a whole note is four beats long. A half note is two beats long. That makes sense, right? There are two halves in a whole, two half notes in a whole note. Two plus two equals four. A quarter note is one beat long, which means there are four quarter notes in a whole note. Also makes sense, right? Four quarters in a a whole. Um, one plus one plus one plus one equals four. So that was all subdivision. We were doing subdividing there. We were taking that whole note and then subdividing it into half notes, then subdividing that into quarter notes, and you can just keep subdividing down. You start with the biggest possible note, and subdivision is all of the possible, you know, fractions, you know, the smaller notes that make up the whole. So just to demonstrate that, let's start with, let's take a beat. These are quarter notes here. I'm just going to hit quarter notes on my chest. And now I'm going to start snapping eighth notes, so you'll hear twice as many. Now those are eighth notes. And now I'm gonna start trying to do 16th notes as well. So. So you went from going bop, bop, to bop, 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 to bop, 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 to one further down would be digga, 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 digga. And you can just keep getting shorter and faster as you subdivide further. So for Pyramid Song, we're going to be talking about quarter notes and eighth notes. So there are twice as many eighth notes in this phrase as there are quarter notes, right? You're basically inceptioning one layer deeper. And you could go a layer deeper than eighth notes and go to 16th notes. And you could go a layer deeper and go to 32nd notes and 64th notes. And I guess 128th notes technically exist, but that's like, you know, you're down in the Arctic bunker at the center of the mind at that point, And that is way too deep for most people. So we're just going to stay up nearer to the surface with quarter notes and eighth notes. One last thing to know going in, the length of a phrase in Pyramid Song is 32 beats. So we want 32 quarter notes. We're going to chop it all up and subdivide it, but in the end, we want to get to 32 beats. Okay, so there's one pattern you need to get into your head to understand Pyramid Song. The pattern itself is actually like kind of a pyramid. It's pretty cool. It's a sequence of numbers that, um, that then replicates throughout the song. And I started counting it in eighth notes, but then it actually scales up one level to quarter notes and just everything is twice as long, but it's the same kind of symmetrical uh, pyramid shape that kind of is built down into the song on two different layers, which is really, really clever and really cool. 
Okay, so that pattern is three, three, four, three, three. So you can kind of picture it, and I'm going to write this down in the show notes. You can actually look at the show notes. This might help with this. Three, three, four, three, three. So that is the eighth note subdivision of pyramid song. There are three eighth notes, then three eighth notes, then four eighth notes, then three eighth notes, then three eighth notes. Then they do that again, and then they do that whole thing twice. So that gives you a total of 32 quarter notes, which is, remember, the same as 64 eighth notes, because there's twice as many eighth notes as there are quarter notes. So that gets you to 64, which is the number of eighth notes we're trying to get to, to have 32 beats, 32 quarter notes. Now that sequence is really easy to hear in the keyboard once you learn how to count it. So I'm going to count along, and this is three, three, four, three, three. You can picture it like a four stacked in between two sets of three on either side. That's that kind of pyramidy sort of symmetrical shape. And three, three, four, three, three. I'm going to count it along with that opening keyboard part to help you hear it. Here we go. So just feel that pulse. I'm going to count it on this next phrase. Here we go. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. All right, try to keep hearing that pulse. I'm gonna count it again on this next phrase. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, 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 four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Three, three, four, three, three. Three, three, four, three, three. Now that might seem totally crazy to you to count that, and it's tricky at first, but once you can get your head around it, I promise it's actually really cool and really fun to listen to this song, just hearing that odd pulse, because they insert that collection of four eighth notes in the middle of those sets of three. And once you can count it, it's just not what you're used to counting, because you know it isn't just a simple 4-4 four, four rhythm, but once you get it in your head, you can actually keep it. It's just about that two sets of three, one, four, and then two sets of three. And then just do it again. Two sets of three, one, four, two sets of three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three. That's it. Okay, so we've basically unlocked the sequence at the heart of this song. That's that eighth note subdivision, that three, three, four, three, three. Two groups of three eighth notes, one group of four eighth notes, and then two groups of three eighth notes. That's the sequence that you really need to know to understand this song. When the drums come in, um, when Philip Selway comes in on the drums sort of halfway through the song, it's easier to think of the way he's counting it as in terms of quarter notes. So instead of two sets of three eighth notes, he's kind of feeling there's one set of three quarter notes. So instead of three, three, four, three, three in eighth notes, uh, the drum sequence is three, two, three in quarter notes. It's the same number of beats. It's just subdivided. It's non-subdivided, I guess. It's like one level of subdivision up. So now I'm just going to count that really quick. One, two, three. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, one, two, three, one. 
Okay, so I'm not gonna go any deeper on it. I hope that you've all stuck with me. This was really fun exercise for me actually to figure it out. It gave me a newfound respect for this song, which is really rhythmically cool, especially the way that they've nestled this sort of rhythmic pyramid into the subdivision, both in the keyboard part, which is playing eighth notes, and in the drums, which are kind of focusing on quarter notes. And really just, it's a fun thing to count and get your head around. Definitely check out the show notes, um, look at those numbers, and try to get your head around it. It might take you a minute listening to the song, but it's a really good exercise because it'll make counting anything that's, you know, a little more straightforward, but in an odd time signature, a lot easier. This is definitely just something that you can practice and you can train your ear on. And it's cool because musicians will do cool stuff like this that you can then appreciate if you can count it. I've got a bunch of other questions that are kind of similar along similar lines about count-ins and introductions that are, you know, deceptive and different odd time signature things that are happening in songs. I'm not going to go into them because I feel like that's enough um, counting for for one Q&A episode, so I will save those for the next Q&A. But it's a kind of endlessly interesting thing to talk about and if you've ever got um, you know the counting for a song that you're curious about do feel free to email me and ask uh, if I can break it down on the show all right one more question before we call it this comes from Joseph who writes I want to tell you a bit about my history with music to give my questions some context I grew up mostly in Texas where I joined band in middle school because I had some friends that said they were going to do it and I wanted to do what they did that's as good a reason to join band as any Joseph Joseph writes, when I showed up for tryouts, yes, in Texas middle school band, you had to try out for your instrument. They had all the new sixth graders try all the different instruments they wanted to play and see what they were good at. I wanted to play percussion because the image of a rock drummer was really cool to me. After trying all the percussion instruments, I thought I'd also try the tuba because, hey, when else would I have a chance to play a tuba? To my dismay, the brass instructor was really impressed with my ability to get a sound out of the instrument, and I ended up being chosen to play the tuba. Oh, and none of my friends actually joined bands, so I was all alone. After a gloomy first few months of band, I actually really fell in love with the tuba and played it through middle school, high school, and even took a class in college. After that, though, I sort of fell off because, to be honest, the tuba isn't really this cool instrument that can work great on its own like a saxophone might be. The tuba really shines when it's supporting a full band. The tuba is also just straight up hard to take around, to get out and practice and maintain, etc. So here's my question. For those of us who don't play the small, sexy, solo-friendly instruments, what are some good ways that we can still practice our craft or at least be involved in some kind of music? playing something if we're not able to do it full-time. Do you recommend trying to learn a new instrument? I would love to hear your words of wisdom in this matter. All right, so first of all, this is a relatable story. I started playing saxophone in middle school, actually. I really wanted to play saxophone. Um, We did kind of have to try out a little bit and pick an instrument, and there were some people who didn't get to play the instrument they wanted to play. I did want to play saxophone, and I wound up playing saxophone, so I guess that worked out. I don't really remember the particulars, but it's kind of interesting how these really important decisions can kind of come down to random chance or just your band director happens to think you sound good on tuba and puts you on tuba and that means that you're kind of a tuba player forever um i don't know how i feel about that i guess i feel mixed about it it's one it's not something that you should obsess over too much i think that i see parents will obsess over what instrument their kids are playing oh they need to learn piano they need to learn all these different instruments and you know I guess so, but also I learned saxophone and that's not the most practical instrument in the world either. And I've, you know, gone on to learn a whole bunch of other instruments and made a life playing music. So you can start anywhere and it can still work out fine. So that's the first thing is that actually it's all kind of just a matter of perspective. Like I, like I said, saxophone isn't actually the most practical instrument. If I had really been, you know, serious about becoming a professional musician when I was in seventh grade, I would have learned piano. I would have gotten much better at piano and singing and guitar. I would have studied more instruments. I wouldn't have picked this kind of specialized instrument, which saxophone really is, despite the fact that from a tuba player's perspective, saxophone might seem like this easy-to-carry-around, solo-friendly instrument. Um, From the 
the perspective of someone who plays a lot of music, saxophone is like, you know, some bands have saxophone, but a lot don't. And, it you know, you can get some work, but it's not like being a bass player or a drummer or a guitar player where there are a million bands that need you. So it's all relative. But the upshot of that is that it actually doesn't matter where you start or how you get into it. Every musical path is different. And, you know, your path is can go forward in any of a million different directions. And I think that's true for someone who started on tuba as well. Um, I actually wrote Joseph back and my advice was, what about bass? You know, think about getting an electric bass and learning that. I think learning more instruments is always a good thing to anyone who feels trapped or stuck on their instrument or wants to experiment with different sounds or different styles. There's nothing stopping you from learning an instrument like bass or guitar. I mean, especially bass and guitar. You can learn enough to play in a rock band if you want to go play with people and be in a band. You can learn enough bass to do that pretty easily. You know, you don't want to fake it and just go in not knowing what you're doing. But especially if you already have training on an instrument like the tuba, which also reads bass clef and kind of lives in that bass realm of the orchestra, similar to how the bass lives in the bass realm of, you know, a a more modern ensemble, you're used to that life. You're used to that bass perspective. And so your head is kind of in the right place. Your ears are in the right place. And it's a great idea to pick up an instrument like that. I'm always learning new instruments. At this point, I don't really practice saxophone anymore. I mean, I just practice guitar and piano and singing because those are the new challenges that I'm doing. And I want to be learning new things. And that's really been an amazing thing. I think that I'll be learning new instruments for the rest of my life. And I see that as this a really positive thing. So I would take your desire, what you're feeling, is this feeling like I want to learn a new instrument. You know, I want to do something new. Take that as a good thing as you're you're kind of telling yourself, okay, it's time to go do something new and just go do it. Go get started. Don't get worried about it being too late or you're not going to be good enough or whatever, any of that. Just go start something new. And that goes for everybody listening to this. If you've ever wanted to learn a new musical instrument, if you've ever thought, man, I wish I could do X or do Y, but I just can't because I only know how to do Z. Don't listen to that. It's time to go do something new. Go ahead and challenge yourself. There's no time like the present and your your future musical course has not yet been charted. That'll do it for this latest Q&A episode. Thanks so much to everybody who wrote in with a question. I didn't get to half of the ones I even wanted to get to, so I have a lot more to do. If you would like to send in a question for the future Q&A episode, feel free to send me one at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or tweet it at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon backers. You can find whole and half-note backers' names in the show notes. And just as a reminder, this is a totally listener-supported show. So if you like what you hear and you dig Strong Songs, I'd appreciate it if you would head over to patreon.com slash strongsongs and consider becoming a backer. The other big way to help the show is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, so thanks to everyone who's done that. No new outro soloist this episode. I am replaying Dan Nervo's excellent guitar solo from a few episodes back. So stick around for that, and I'll be back in two weeks with another Strong Song. Thank you.